This episode is sponsored by TGW.com. The Golf Warehouse is an online store that's an awesome place to snag some new gear whenever you need it. I know that over the years I've picked up a bunch of good stuff from TGW. Always feels like I'm at a shortage of, who knows, shirts, shoes, gloves, extra hats, maybe a new putter after the last one got thrown in a lake. But did you know that they actually have a 230,000 square foot warehouse for the 40,000 products that they sell? That's pretty crazy. So if you need some essentials like gloves, range finders, shorts, pants, go check out TGW. They actually have their own brand, which delivers a high level of performance with pricing you need on gear that you go through frequently, like that kind of stuff. Make sure to check out what TGW is doing at tgw.com slash GSL. And you can use the coupon code GSL for an additional percentage off. Make sure to go over to tgw.com slash GSL and make sure to use that coupon code to let them know that you're listening to the podcast and that you headed over to their site and purchase something. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking to leaders in the industry, from instructors to researchers to golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better at golf and what that means for you. So as you can probably guess from the name of this podcast, the Golf Science Lab, we appreciate study that is happening in this field. Today's episode is centered around some study and analysis by Chris Finn. He's been doing some research here with his clients in Raleigh, North Carolina, trying to figure out why we can generate the club head speed that we do. Looking at questions like, is my club head speed good for my age, my gender, my fitness level? Do I have more distance available to me? What if I improve my fitness? And Chris has been on a mission to figure that out. And today we're going to hear what he's been learning. The sponsor for today's episode is Gravity Fit. Gravity Fit is a great feedback device and they're helping to fill the white space between knowing what is happening in your golf swing and actually making a change. As motor learning and effective practice is heating up, Gravity Fit is making equipment and instructional content that fits squarely into this space by providing real-time feedback on posture and movement quality. PGA Tour winner Cameron Smith is a huge advocate for the products, using them for anything from gym work to pre-round warm-up to hitting full shots on the range. Cam realizes the importance of being provided with consistent feedback on his posture and movement, simply going through his usual routines or really trying to make a technical change. Cam knows there's a strong relationship between his body moving right and his ball striking and gravity fit is a key part of ensuring that he is on the right track. The feedback that gravity fit really gives is fantastic. Check out how it works. The best thing that you can do is watch a video. We have one over on our site, golfsciencelab.com slash gravity fit. We have a bunch of videos there. You can head over to gravityfit.com to learn more. They have an article on there so you can see how Cam incorporates gravity fit into his prep. Before we hear what Chris has been working on, quick bio on who he is. Yeah, so I'm a physical therapist in North Carolina. started out as a strength coach uh, and basically in a year into my career, realized I was a terrible employee. I had a passion for golf and wanting to do things on my own. So I went out and started my own business, uh, Par for Success, from the back of my car. And really since then, just been driven with the mission of trying to be the best in the world at understanding golfers and how we can train them to be 
as or perform at as high of a level as possible throughout the entire you know, range of their life and help them to when they stop playing golf that it's because they decided they want to stop playing and not because their body told them they can't play anymore or they can't hit the ball far enough where it's enjoyable. So that's where really everything has come from you know, my desire to to be better myself, to help other people achieve whatever their better may be. And that's really driven everything that we've done at Par for Success, everything that I've done in my career personally. So the problem that we want to figure out is why are we able to swing the club faster or not? And look at what's holding us back. And to illustrate this example, Chris has a great story of how this is implemented. So I think any golfer, you can take any golfer out there. Let's say that it's a, you know, a 50-year-old golfer you know, he, who came to me and he basically said, hey, I'd like to increase my club head speed. I'm, I'm now the shortest guy in the, you know, in my group. By the way, my back hurts. <laughs> I had a, a litany of issues. So basically with our testing that we did is whenever we meet with somebody, we have a bait, we do a baseline testing where we look at movement. We look at, you know, they're actually swinging. A lot of our research is actually based around a part, a component of that assessment around how well they produce power. So there's three main areas we look at in power. So we saw how high the, the golfer jumped. We saw how high he threw a medicine ball from a seated position. just kind of a chest pass. Then we saw how far he could throw it from a, a shot put position, both on his right and left side. So, you know, day one, we have all of the baseline numbers. We see how fast he's swinging the, the golf club. It was probably uh, somewhere between six to 10 weeks where we worked with him both on mobility, kind of every, he needed a little bit of everything. So, you know, rehab, mobility some strength training, some power and speed work. And then we came back and retested him. He basically, the first thing we did was club head speed. And he was really upset. His club head speed actually had dropped two miles an hour. So it's not what you're looking for <laughs> when at the end of a six-week period or you know, when you're trying to get somebody to, to keep training with you. So you know, luckily at that point, we had done our initial data. So we said, well, let's see you know, what else happened physically. So when we went and looked at all of those power numbers again, you know, his mobility had improved. We went and looked at all of his power numbers. Every single one of his power numbers was up. And because of our research, we know that each of those power markers is very highly correlated with club head speed. So in layman's terms, if any of those, if those three power tests go up, that person or that golfer has more, you know, then you have more horsepower. You, ha you, you physically have the ability to move faster. And so because we also knew his mobility had improved, that really we had done our job. And so we were able to show him, hey, physically, everything is up. You know, it's either going to be an equipment issue or it's a technique issue. So he went the next day. He had just so happened he had a lesson with his golf instructor. We called her, called her up. We told her, her what, you know, how, what was going on. She saw him in, in two swings. He, for some reason, technically wise, was he was just early releasing, casting a club. Just worked on getting him to you know, have a little bit more lag again. And he was 10 miles an hour up above where he had started. So, you know, overall 12 miles an hour faster than he was the day before when he had tested with us. It was because of a technique issue that was masking the physical gains he had made. So it allowed us to really be laser focused with that golfer and say to him, look, physically, everything you're doing here is working. You should be able to swing the golf club faster. And then we were able to identify, is it an equipment problem or is it a technique problem? And, you know, 24 hours later, now he's up 10 miles an hour and he's a client for life, <laughs> you know, and he is now the longest guy in his group. So by understanding from the information that we had in, in our assessment, you know, pre and, and then retest and having that information from our research, we were able to 
you know, from a business standpoint, save somebody from leaving to becoming a lifelong client. So his client was improving. He did some tests and showed that he'd gotten more mobile, he'd gotten stronger and had the results to prove it. But his club head speed was down. And this is, you know, a common situation. Like the question that everyone asks is, if I get stronger, if I hit the gym, if I get more mobile, will I swing faster? And kind of this data collection process and the way that Chris is approaching this is going to give more clarity to that question. And in this situation, he's able to find that solution. He's able to find that missing link. And so kind of the next step you're asking is what are these tests? What are these assessments that Chris has been talking out about to see what is actually linked to club head speed? You know, the tests themselves, you know, we were taught, you know, in all of our certifications, hey, these are the types of tests you should look at. But there was nobody ever really said, hey, this is the scientific relationship between these tests and that, you know, and club head speed, you know, which is the big marker that a lot of the golfers are looking at. And so for me to be able to confidently, you know, and with a sense of integrity, tell somebody that, hey, you got better here, you should be getting better. And then also to check myself and our training methods and our coaches and say, you know, are you actually improving your, your golfers? We needed something objective that we could measure and, and reference. I think that was the first part of actually collecting and seeing if there actually truly was a relationship between those tests and club head speed. I think the second question was, you know, anybody who's worked with a golfer and they get up and they swing you know, 90 miles an hour and they're going to look at you and say, is that good? And really the only numbers that we had is for club head speed, you know, the LPGA average, the PGA average, but those are the 1%. We didn't have, what's average for a 50-year-old if they swing 50 miles an hour or 90 miles an hour, what percentile are they in among their peers? And now we have that for club, not only club head speed, but each of those tests too. You know, you have somebody would throw a ball and, hey, that was 20 feet. Was that good? And we'd look at them kind of, like, well, it was further than Bob who threw it before you, <laughs> but he's six years older, so I'm not really sure. But now we can actually pull out the information and say, look, you fall on the 25th percentile for chest pass and you're at the 25th percentile for club head speed. Like if all of your physical tests stink, it's no surprise that you're also at the low end spectrum of your club head speed. So now we actually have objective information and, you know, every, you know, every month we're getting more and more data points where it's, it's making it even easier to extrapolate out among, you know, age, sex, you know, it's just getting more and more accurate in terms of how well you can, or you know, how confident you can be in the numbers and where your, your golfer or your client would stand. Would you mind dive in and explain exactly what you did? The specific data that you're gathering and then how you organize that and what kind of revelations you made. Yeah. So I think if we, you know, if we start from the general overall relationships, what we looked at were the, the three power tests. So how high somebody jumps, so the vertical jump, uh, seated chest pass, basically they sit in a chair, their back is on the back of the chair, feet are flat on the ground. They, you know, throw the ball out. Let's say we use a six pound medicine ball. Let's see how far they can throw it. And then we do a, a standing shot put. So they have the ball in their right hand, and they would kind of you know, squat and rotate a little bit, throw it as far as they could, and then they do the same thing with their left. So basically what we do in our facility is we test all of our clients three times a year, and then we've been compiling that based on age, uh, weight, height, I mean, you, you name it. We have the, <laughs> that information on them. But what, for this study, what we looked at was the relationship of vertical jump, seated chest pass, shot put, both sides. And those had correlations for shot put of 0.82, which for stats guys out there, <laughs> the closer to one that that is, 
the stronger of a relationship that is. So we had 0.82 for shot put right and left. If we looked across all ages, that had the strongest relationship to club head speed. Seated chest pass was second at 0.79, and vertical jump was third at 0.63. So obviously the further away from one, it's not quite as strong, but those all over 0.5 are very strong and very relevant data points to look at in terms of vertical jump, how well somebody produces vertical thrust, seated chest pass, how well somebody produces upper body power, and then shot put right and left, how how well somebody produces kind of a rotary power element. Basically, from there, we also were messing around with an anti-rotational test. So everybody in golf talks about how strong anti-rotation is in terms of, you know, if we talk about X-factor, as your hips start to go down through impact and accelerating towards the target, how well can you keep your trunk separated or, you know, or behind? But we, nobody really had a test to measure how strong somebody was in that, you know, in that actual type of core stability. So we created a test where we have somebody lay on their back, flat on the ground, feet together, knees together, almost like you were going to do a bridge and pick your butt up off the ground. And then they hold a a handle that's attached to a cable machine. And then basically we start to ramp up the weight on that cable machine. We start at five pounds. And then that, but that handle is connected by a string to basically there's a a little wooden pole in a a, uh, water bottle. So when that weight gets too heavy and the person, it pulls the person over, you know, it'll knock the the water bottle over. So we actually were able to, you know, enter an intra-rater reliability from that standpoint. We were able to establish what that reliability was, and it actually was a pretty reliable test. And the cool thing was that that actually had, you know, close to a 0.7 relationship to shot put. Didn't have a great relationship to club head speed, which we expected because it's a strength test and club head speed is a power measure. But it was interesting to see that there definitely was a relationship that the stronger somebody's anti-rotational strength was, the further they would be able to throw a ball in a shot put, which that definitely correlated to club head speed. So it was very interesting to see, you know, A, that the test was valid, but then B, that there had actually, you know, anti-rotational strength theoretically makes sense. And now we can say objectively it's something that definitely is important. How does this impact how you work with students and I guess how, you know, how can other people utilize this? Yeah, so I think, I mean, in so many ways, I think the first thing is that if you're training golfers or if you're a golfer and you're, you, know, you maybe don't have a trainer, but I think when you look at your, whatever type of core strength you're going to be doing, you need to be doing some form of anti-rotational core strength. So, you know, simple examples would be if you're in a push-up position, just tapping the opposite, tapping your left shoulder with your right hand, put it down and then do the other with the other side and trying to limit any shifting or rotating of your hips as you do that. So I have some of Chris's data here in front of me. One great thing is he's breaking this down by gender and age. So let's say a male 21 to 40, I fit in here. We have a vertical jump, seated chest past, shot put right, shot put left, Kaiser right, Kaiser left, height and weight. And the things with the highest correlation on this list were at a 0.49, a seated chest pass and a 0.47, a vertical jump pass. And, And just for instance, let's compare that to a 41 to 50 year old male Correlation is 0.6 to vertical jump and seated chest pass 0.16. So that it changed. The seated chest pass went down in correlation for the older male. And, you know, it, as we look at this, there's some really fascinating things. That the one thing that when Chris and I were talking is is they don't have 
as much data as he'd like. For instance, that 41 to 50 year old male group, there are 39 samples in there. He's hoping with uh, you know everyone in the industry, if, if we can kind of get this to, to take off, to get 10,000 entries in this data set to really make it something as useful is possible for everyone. And I love that kind of call to action to, to rally uh, the industry here, to rally folks, to help build this database so that as an industry, there's something that can be utilized. I think when we looked at the, at the numbers and, and part of it is understanding to, you know, for instance, like with vertical leap, you know, vertical is a very, very strong, has a very, very strong relationship with club head speed in 16 to 20 and 20 to 30 year olds. So more of your elite athletes, it's actually a terrible predictor with younger kids, you know, 10 to 15 or prepubescent. And I'd say it's kind of middle of the road in your 50 plus or your older golfer. So, you know, when we, I said those initial overall correlations, they do vary between age groups. As I would encourage people to, before you're going to, you know, if you listen to this and then you're going to go apply this to your clients, at least get all the data so that you can dig, dig in and figure out where your client falls and just how important that test may be. But in the instance of the gentleman with the equipment issue, he was over 50 years old. Vertical had gone up some, but the bigger marker of shot put, which in that age group has the strongest correlation to club head speed, that would like skyrocketed. So we actually, you know, it didn't make any sense that his club head speed was down. And we usually test with the driver. So just out of curiosity, I had him grab his seven iron. We had recorded his seven iron speed earlier. And his seven iron actually was up 10 miles an hour. So then you start kind of putting together the puzzle, right? Where you're saying, okay, all of his physical markers are up. His iron is up 10 miles an hour. Why is his driver down? <laughs> so then we had, what we actually did is we filmed it you know, in slow motion. And Cordy, if you can imagine this, the curve in his shaft of this golf club when he was at, you know, P5, it was, it, it looked like one of the long drive guys after they finish and the, the club's wrapping around him and it's about to snap. I mean, he just, he was putting, <laughs> he had so much speed and, and just forced through that shaft. It was just totally overpowering the shaft. He was losing, you know, any energy that he had put in there. So you know, it, it came down to once we actually filmed it, we don't usually film, we usually use more 3D and that sort of stuff. But once we actually filmed it, it was like, oh, duh, well, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. So that's when, from the equipment side, he went and got a, he got fitted for a different shaft and, you know, he was up the equivalent 10 miles an hour with his driver as he was with his irons. I guess his iron shaft just happened to be a little bit heavier and he couldn't overpower that, you know, compared to the guy who, Equipment really wasn't the issue. It was more just a technique. He was just flailing and losing the, you know, he was losing energy at the top of his downswing because of poor technique. You know, corrected that, and he was good to go. You know, in terms of a, of a huge speed gain. So really, in both instances, what we were able to do is rule out the physical elements as a potential reason for a, you know, a less than desirable result. We were able to say that, hey, physically. If we look at in my mind, when I look at club speed, I, I think of kind of four main areas to a pie. I think of a, you got equipment, I think you have technical, I think of mobility, and then I think of an ability to generate power, which is more your strength and how fast you can accelerate. And so basically that, I think of the, the physical as kind of the bottom half of that pie. With this data and this testing, you're able to eliminate that you know 50% of the equation in terms of, hey, I know that 50% got better. So something else has to be going on outside of, you know, as a fitness or medical professional, it's outside of my realm of expertise. And I need to refer to, you know, whoever it is in that, whether it's a club fitter, whether it's a PGA or LPGA professional, they're going to be able to give this person the best result possible. So that, that's really the, the cool functional aspect of this, 
research. And I don't know about you, but I hate research that you go through reading a whole research study and you're like, okay, great. That told me nothing I could actually use. <laughs> so the goal of this is that, you know, the reason why we're making it public to everybody is so that you can actually take the information, take who you're, who most of us work with is the average golfer and say, Hey, you know, as I look at this and I look at other people around the world, you know, I think it's a mobility issue for you. It's something physical or, you know what, your physical numbers are, you know, 75th, 90th percentile, but your club speed's way low. That doesn't match up. There's something going on. So maybe that's not in the realm of physical. Maybe that's in the realm of technical or uh, equipment. So, uh, so that's really the, the, that's how those stories happen. And I think the more that people are using the information and looking at those things, there's going to, you're going to hear more and more and more of those stories. And that's going to help golfers play better quicker with a hell of a lot less frustration. (laughs) Yeah. So different tests are more important for different age demographics, different genders. Mm -hmm. How do you figure out like where to start? Like, so you said for elite golfers, 16 to 30 or something like that, that the vertical jump is really important. So is it, all right, hey, Cordy, you fit into that demographic. You need to work on your vertical jump. And if we can improve that, we can improve your speed. Or how does that work? So I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to the golfer in front of you or some people say in N of one. And yes, let's say you're in that 16 to 30. Yes, the data says that vertical leap correlates as a group most strongly with club head speed. But I think then you start talking about, you know, some ground reaction forces and, you know, are you more of a horizontal driver, a vertical driver, a torsional driver? If you're a player that is definitely a vertical drive is a huge part of how you generate speed and your vertical is not very good, then yeah, that's definitely going to be a huge, uh, of huge value to you. You know, if you're more of a horizontal driver and vertical is not much in the picture to the degree that it's going to improve it, you know, that's a whole nother conversation. But at least I think the information starts that conversation of where might the biggest bang for your buck come from. But I think even before you get into the, you know, this data in terms of how to create power, it doesn't matter the age. I think if you can't rotate from any, from the four main rotary centers, in my opinion, nothing else really matters because everything else, how you generate power, everything is going to be a compensation. Um, so, you know, do you have good enough hip rota- internal rotation? Do you have enough thoracic spine rotation, shoulder rotation, and neck rotation? I think if you check those four boxes, then the, the power stuff becomes a way more fruitful. Or that becomes more of the low, low hanging fruit. I think if anybody fails any of those four areas, uh, we actually have a free on our website. It's a free home golf fitness assessment that looks at just those four things. And you can look at, do you pass or do you fail? And if you fail those four, that's the low hanging fruit right there. I mean, I've seen huge speed gains just by somebody being able to actually rotate more. So that's, that's the low hanging fruit. If you check that box and you don't have any issues there, then I think we get in that conversation, like what you said, if, hey, if you're 16 to 30 and that has the strongest relationship to club head speed, that's definitely an area we want to look at. And if you are you know, if you have the technology to look at 3D force plates and you do create a ton of speed by vertical thrust, well, then heck yeah, that's definitely where we want to focus. You know, so I think there's so many layers, right, when you start talking about the science of it. But at a very superficial level, if you can't rotate don't even worry about the power yet, <laughs> you know, at least improve your rotation as much as you're able to. And then when you start looking at the power basis, yeah, for 50 plus, you're looking more at your total rotary power for 16 to 30, more that elite athlete post post puberty, you're looking, you know, a lot of how you're using the ground. Uh, the interesting, the 10 to 15 year old males, for instance, 
the seated chest pass or upper body power was the most related to club bed speed. So and I think, you know, when you think of younger kids too, from an instructional level, you know, over the top or chopping down or very upper body dominant swing, it kind of starts to make sense that that's how that individual is going to swing or that's where they're going to go for, for their power. If that's why they create most of their power and they may not necessarily understand how to use the ground yet. So I think, you know, going back to the original question of where do you start based on where you are, I think you understand where your age group tends to derive the most power, but at the end of the day, you're an N of one. And I think you need to, everybody needs to make sure they can have that mobility. If you have that, then I think you start digging deeper into your age group where, where people tend to derive the most power. But honestly, what I would look at is look at where you stand in the percentile for each of the tests. So if you're 75th percentile for chest pass, you're 75th percentile for vertical, but you're 25th percentile for total rotational, well, there's your low-hanging fruit in the, low rota- in the rotational. So that's where you can look at yourself across all of those spectrums and see, you know, do you match up across all of them? Are you pretty evenly distributed? Are you off the charts on a couple and you know, off the chart in the wrong way <laughs> you know, in another? Then you can start to you know, get a better picture or blueprint of you as a, as a human and as a golfer and how you move and create speed. Let's take a look here real quick at a couple different types of training as well. And the final piece of Chris's study. That actually goes into the final piece of what we found was that we looked at two types of training. So we looked at conventional based training, which would be traditionally you'd go higher reps, low weight when you start. And you'd progress to a little bit higher weight, kind of medium reps, and then you'd go to lower reps and high load. Uh, we did that for a year. And then the next year we went and we did what's called triphasic training where you're training the eccentric phase, which would, if you were talking about a squat, which would be the lowering part of the squat. So you'd, you'd do five to seven second descents. And then we moved after that for four weeks, we moved into isometric where if we use a squat as an example, you'd pause at the bottom of the squat for you know three to five seconds. And then we went to the concentric phase of movement, which would be the pushing up of the squat. So if we're th- thinking about the golf swing, your backswing to a degree is, is kind of an eccentric move where you're creating a little bit of a stretch. Your transition is a little bit of an isometric pause, basically, where there's not a lot of movement in the, or not any movement in the joints, but there's still tension through the tissue. And then the concentric is the shortening and explosion of that expression of that power out. And what we found with that was that 50 plus year olds or the older individual, um, the elite individual had, if they did traditional training, they actually saw a 10% underperformance across the average of all of the people in their group. <laughs> but if they did triphasic training, they overperformed by 50% in terms of swing speed gains. So I think when we're talking about, you know, as a whole, what can we do? I think if you're in, you know, let's say over 20 and you have some form of training experience, even a little bit, I think triphasic training is something that's a type of training that across the board is going to benefit pretty much every golfer. The only exception would be juniors that we saw a flip of that. So triphasic training actually caused them to underperform the average club at speed gain by 12% as opposed to compared to traditional training, which you saw basically a 60% or 50% improvement where they actually overperformed by 37% if they just did more of that conventional training. So I think the generalizations you can take from that are your kind of younger golfers or somebody who's really new to the gym kind of going with that traditional or conventional training model is going to prove very valuable for them in the beginning. After they have a little bit of experience or, or post-pubescent, then I think going to a more triphasic type training, at least during some part of the year, is going to give somebody you know huge value. 
and, you know, and I think you can look certainly at those three power tests across everybody, and you can certainly use the the relationships to club head speed across everybody. I think if you just generally pay attention to that and you try to improve generally your vertical, your ability to, to jump, your ability to create rotational you know, power and your ability to create you know, upper body power, everybody's going to get better to, you know, basically when we start talking about vertical leap wasn't as valuable as total rotational in the 50 plus golfer. That doesn't mean if you improve somebody's vertical that it's going to, they're going to get better. I think that's when you start talking uh, people geeks like me, you start talking about, okay, well, how can we get an extra 5%? How can we get an extra 10%? Uh, and for the average golfer, if you're just focusing on, make sure you can rotate in the four main rotary centers and, you know, look to make sure you're at least somewhat consistent in your percentile in terms of how you create power. If you do those two things, those simply those two things, and then you look at if you're a prepubescent or younger, uh, you know, just do traditional training. If you're older, certainly, I think it's worth looking into triphasic training. Those three things are going to help 90%, 95% of golfers out there. If you're paying attention to that and just kind of starting to actually not just go to the gym just to do what you saw on Golf Channel yesterday, but actually look at you and understand that where you are in life, you know, being able to move from a mobility standpoint, doing a, a certain type of training is more beneficial for you. And then also understanding that, hey, I can actually very simply look at how well I generate power from these three areas. And if one's really bad and the other two are pretty good, that's probably an area I can work on incorporating into my workout to be a little bit more specific to me and how I can get better to you know, hit the ball a little bit further, be more consistent, uh, and just enjoy the game more. Thank you so much to our guest, Chris Finn. If you are listening to this, make sure to check out his website, check out the research. You can download the PDF with all of the data and get in touch with Chris to ask him any questions. We will link that on the post that goes along with this episode that is on our website, golfsciencelab.com. While you are there, we released a short free training series with Dr. Greg Carton to help you gain some mental clarity and understand some foundational concepts to help you perform better. A few free training videos. You will see a link on the homepage to check that out. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned. We have amazing stuff coming at you on a weekly basis. This episode was hosted and written by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions. 